to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broadest sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Here we are, my 100th episode of the podcast, and that is 100 fascinating hospitality humans that I've met since launching this about 18 months ago. And this project still makes absolutely no sense at all from a financial or a time perspective, but my goodness, am I enjoying having some conversations with some great peers in the industry that I love. And many of you listening send great feedback saying the same, so thank you, thank you for our shared adventure. It is an utter privilege that you choose to listen. So for our 100th episode, I really wanted to get a bit of an industry superstar in my eyes. And Robin Hudson has been on my list of people I've wanted to chat to since day one of launch. Him and Danny Meyer. So Danny, if you're listening, I'll be getting in touch with you soon. And in fact, if any of you listening know Danny and can make an introduction, that would be appreciated. Anyway, back to Robin. I've interviewed some of his mates, Mark Hicks, Mitch Tonks, James Golding, Robin Shepard, and each time I asked them to put in a good word for a chat with Robin. And finally, Danny Peccarelli, one of my new favourite hospitality humans after the chat that I had with him in episode 98, he joined the dots and made it happen. And I live within a pretty easy cycle of two of Robin's pig hotels. Pig on the beach in Studland and Pig in the forest in Brockenhurst. And I utterly love what Robin has created. I was lucky enough to meet Gerard Basset a couple of times as well, who he co-founded Hotel Devan with. And he was always an utter gent and encouraged me more to have an interest in their shared journeys. Now I've seen Robin talk at a couple of hotel events and basically he just knows his stuff. He oozes common sense and his attention to detail is exemplary. With more cash behind him than I've had, I've always imagined that the pig is the kind of venue I would love to run given the resources. Plenty of open grounds, an awesome kitchen garden, supplying the kitchen with exceptional seasonal produce, relaxed ambience and surroundings, good food and wonderfully designed venues, but not pretentious. It really is just a great business and his occupancy figures and his margins are the envy of many a competitor. And they say never meet your heroes and I was worried having finally organised a meeting I'd be disappointed, but Robin was very generous with his time, he was enthusiastic with his stories, and I felt genuinely privileged to get to poke and prod at one of our hospitality greats sat in one of his venues. So there could not really be a more fitting person for my 100th show. A genuine human of hospitality, and if you told me in episode 1 that in a 100 shows time you'll be chewing the fat with Robin, I'd have been happy in the knowledge that the seedling of an idea had become the sort of show that I wanted it to be. So enjoy the chat, and remember, if you do enjoy this show, you can do me two favours, please. 
One is subscribe and hit the five star review button. It takes just a few seconds and you could do it right now. Just pick up the device you're listening on. And secondly, if you can support the podcast financially by becoming a Patreon, head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk forward slash donate. I'll spend the money on the very occasional thank you beer when it's hot, but in the main on the kit and the tech and the time to continue to get great guests for all of us to enjoy. Thank you. Robin Hudson, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Hugely appreciated. Hi, Mark. Good to be with you. Thank you. And uh, first one I've done face-to-face in a long time because we, we are fortunately, it's, uh, it's August 2020, so we're, we're off the back of uh, lockdown. For people listening, can you just explain, because I've come to your place, uh, Robin, where are we in the world? Yeah, it's quite refreshing to see a real person rather than the fuzzy screen, isn't it? Yeah. Um, um, uh, so uh, we are currently located at the original um, the pig in the New Forest, uh, which is just near Brockenhurst, um, and it's uh, quite a nice sunny day out there, and uh, yeah, looking like uh, an English summer. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, and your team were very impressive as I arrived this morning. As I as I got to the door, I hadn't even come in the door, and they said good morning, Mark, and then I must have passed seven or eight exceptionally happy, smiley, cheerful people. I don't know if they're always like that, or if they're just super grateful to be back open again, or maybe it's because they knew I was meeting you. But uh, yeah, an, an impressive welcome, and the team pleased to be back open. Uh, the team are really pleased. I mean, you know, I think there was a novelty factor for the first couple of weeks. Everyone was enjoying a you know, a couple of extra weeks uh, of, of, of downtime and, uh, and uh, putting their feet up. Um, but, um, yeah, as, as it dragged on, for sure, it, it was testing a few people's uh, patience. And so, um, and they're an energetic young crew and, um, you know, they're, they're really enjoying being back, doing what they do best, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's lovely. Just, yeah, like you say, nice to see people face to face and just nice to feel the energy um, of hospitality venues. So um, I love the pig. Um, I, I enjoyed, I think one of my wife's, uh, you know, early kind of memories was staying at, back at a hotel divan right in the early days. So I kind of followed your uh, career. I was saying to you earlier, I've met Mark Hicks and uh, a few other of your buddies, Mitch Tonks, and I've been hassling them to, 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 to pass a note to you um, to get you on the podcast. So it's been good fun uh, doing some research and finding out a bit more about you. And, and I sort of, whenever I read the occupancy rates in your rooms, I want to dislike you. And then the more I read about you, the more I go, man. And, th- and then not only that, but you're also into motorbikes and, and travel. Um, so I wanted to start there a little bit because that's another one of my passions is kind of adventure and travel. So when you go off and you do things like that 7,000 kilometer ride across Chile and Argentina, are, are these things you know, an, an escape from the business or inevitably do you find that trips like that fill you full of inspiration and you come back even more kind of excited and enthused, I suppose, to bring ideas back to the business? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm very lucky that um, uh, I, I, I have a, uh, a friend who, uh, who organises everything for us. So, so that's, um, uh, that's a, a very good starting point. Um, that's so, not the only reason he's a friend. Right? <laughs> <Didn't you? laughs> that's so. All I really have to do is uh, get my bike to wherever we're uh, we're, we're starting from. Um, the most recent one was um, in uh, South America. So we started in the Atacama Desert in Chile and, and rode south uh, to the southern tip. Um, it's always a bit of a challenge, you know, for a, for, for a longer trip to sort of prepare your escape, really. Um, you know we're we're busy. We we have uh, we have a number of hotels, as you know. Um, uh, now a thousand employees. Um, 
so there's lots going on all the time and usually a project or two you know happening or about to happen so actually preparing to go and and to 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 get out of of the office um is is sometimes challenging uh but once there uh, hopefully i've done the the prep work and of course uh, communications these days mean that you know i i generally take a, a an ipad with me uh, which slips in in the bag quite easily, and you know there are very few occasions where you're really out of uh, communication for too long. So you, you can still keep in touch, um, but I do find it a, a, a great uh, a great escape. Bit of a pun there, really, isn't it? A great escape <laughs> on the motorbike, but it's a, a, a great escape. And, and yeah, it definitely definitely clears your head when you're on a bike. You can't really think about anything else too much. Uh, you have to concentrate all the time. It's uh, you know it's uh, it's fairly dangerous uh, occupation, and uh, the sort of places we've been to uh, have you know have other hazards as well. So um, uh, so yeah, uh, uh, it is definitely a, a mind clearing uh, exercise. But you do of course bump into things that inspire you as well, particularly in South South America, where which is great food and wine country, of course. Um, so there, there were there are several things that uh, that I brought back from a, from a hospitality point of view from from there. Any 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 examples or? Well, I mean, uh, I'd always been a fan of uh, of uh, Amer- uh, of South American wines and North American wines, as uh, as it happens. But you know, the the range you know goes way beyond a bit of jammy old Malbec, and um, uh, you know there are some really you know top drawer wines down there made by the same kind of passionate people you find in the rest of the world and I don't know why that should be a surprise to me because making wine anywhere takes a real real commitment and passion but uh, but I was really I was blown away by the quality of the wines um, in in all places really you know uh, sort of at, in in the, the higher regions and, and lowlands in Chile and in Argentina um, so that was great of course, um, cooking over fire uh, was uh, uh, something I've always enjoyed. And uh, but really seeing it, we were lucky enough to go to uh, one of Malman's restaurants down there uh, with the the seven fires and uh, and seeing all this uh, really uh, basic cooking technique. But you know, of course, fantastic theatre and completely delicious as well. Yeah. Nice. How long was the trip in total? Um, I think I did uh, that last one. I think I did uh, four weeks of uh, a five-week trip. I had to come back just a little bit early. Uh, it bumped into Christmas and one thing or another. So okay. yeah, no, so that was my choice to yeah. to jump out a week early. Amazing. Yeah. Good. Good adventures. I think the danger with uh, tasting wine on any trips like that, though, is that it, it, you know because you've ridden a bike for two hundred miles that day and you're dirty and thirsty and hungry, that it always tastes absolutely incredible. And then you uh, yeah you import it back to the UK and it's never quite the same on a rainy day in February. I don't think. Well, I think there's there's yeah there's always a danger um, and. Classically, that used to go for some of the very thin wines from southern France and Greece and so on. But winemaking has come on a long, long way in the last 20 years. And, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm amazed these days. It's, it's a rare occasion you pick up something that is, is undrinkable, yeah. uh, almost at any price. You know? yeah. Even English wine, particularly the sparking, doing, doing really well. Isn't it? I'm, I'm a really big fan of English wine and have been a... A kind of ambassador for it, really. Um, 
we started suppressing champagne, in fact, in 2014, I think it was, when we opened uh, the Pig near Bath, um, uh, in favour of English sparkling wine. So we currently sell probably around 15,000 bottles of, of English sparkling wine uh, a year. Um, and our last hotel that we opened, the Pig uh, at Bridge Place in Kent, sits itself in the middle of what they call the Wine Garden of England, and the really interesting thing, I think, in uh, in Kent is that they're not only having success with sparkling wine, but also uh, with still wines um, uh, uh, and even red wine. I didn't think it was possible, actually, in our climate to find a red wine that, you know, I would uh, order other than for novelty value. Uh, but um, I assure you there are some really great examples um, over there. Uh, so much so that we planted a little vineyard, actually, at the the next pig, which is uh, the one that's going to be in the South Downs in Maidhurst. We've planted two acres of vineyard uh, with the intention of making still wine there. Really? Oh, wow, okay. Apparently it's the, um, it's the chalky kind of soil that comes under the channel there, isn't it, in the Downs, that makes it particularly good. Same, same soil as the Champagne region. Absolute, think, absolutely that. Uh, the one thing, you know, I'm, I, I am a bit of a wine anorak, and, and the, more I, the more I go around the world... Uh, uh, looking at vineyards and, and, and wines, the one common denominator is the fact that the the soil always looks, you know, just uh, the kind of stuff that you wouldn't dream anything would grow in uh, pretty much everywhere in the world, and that seems to make the, the best wine. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? Breaky Bottom, do you know Breaky Bottom wine? Oh. I went and saw him in the Downs, but I don't know if it's still still going. Yeah, to, to be honest, I, I've never been there, but no. I mean, I've heard of it. Yeah, but, I remember but, yeah. going there years ago, and it's it's in the Downs. It's a beautiful little valley that you just you drive a couple of miles down a little track, and yeah, uh, yeah met, met the owner who was quirky, and he had fresh oysters and gave us all this English sparkling. It was the first time that, yeah, you did. You felt like you'd, you'd, you'd gone abroad and, and got lost. It was beautiful. Um, so you, you regularly talk about hospitality being tiny, uh, so millions of tiny details what do you mean by that and do you think that you consciously notice details in a way that perhaps other people only notice subconsciously yeah i i, I absolutely believe uh, i suppose the the saying that i tend to repeat uh particularly to our teams uh, um is that what we do is not very often is not technically very difficult you know we we're not, you know, scientists splitting an atom. That's what we're not. What we are doing is putting together uh, a whole bunch of tiny details to create some sort of slightly magical experience. And, and, and at whatever level, level, it doesn't matter whether you're going into uh, a McDonald's and buying a, you know, whatever it is, two quid hamburger... Um, the fact is that the detail that has gone into that burger, uh, all ev everything has been considered that's gone into that burger, like it or not like it. That doesn't doesn't really matter. But it, but but it has, and 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 the delivery and the fact that you never wait more than thirty seconds and all that sort. Of, so that 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 operation has been very very considered, and it's about a load of details. At our end of of, of the of hospitality um, it, it's, it's a little more complex than that because we have 
Uh, we have restaurants, we have rooms, we have bars, we have outdoor spaces, we have kitchen gardens, we have spas, we have all sorts of other things, and every one of those is a collection of details. So for sure it's a million details, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And the consideration of, e and of each and every one of those details, I think, uh, uh, says... Uh, uh, just uh, it, it actually describes your your brand it says what it's all about and you know I'm looking around this room now and I'm looking at a vintage saucer under uh, 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 an old uh, terracotta flower pot and I know that my wife has been through a pile of vintage saucers and kicked out the ones she didn't like so that so that w the ones that exist in this building are of a certain genre and uh, you know a certain style and likewise, with every other thing, I can tell you the story behind every element in this room uh, and all the other rooms in, in the estate. And that's what I mean by a million details. Yeah, and, and you, do, you really do live and breathe it because, yeah, just the details are coming in here. The main smell I've got is I've got a, a mint plant sort of, you know, 40 inches from me. But it's combining with those incredible strawberries that have obviously been picked at just the perfect time this morning in that bowl in front of you. And, and that aroma... Uh, alone, you know, I kept looking around and seeing if you had one of those little plug-in machines, but it's literally <laughs> just, just, just the freshness. So, uh, yeah, you, you really live it. Do you think you also um, have a tendency to be either slightly rebellious or, or to question the norm? And I'm kind of thinking back to when you opened uh, Hotel de Van and you had that that uh, tent card that said "No dress code, children welcome, espresso machine," um, which was, you know, sp potentially a succinct sort of way of of slightly rebelling against the tradition of what a classic hotel was at that time. Do you, do you question the norm? Uh, I absolutely question the norm. And, uh, you know, and I think at that time, that was 93, 94. Actually, I wish I could find one of those tent cards because uh, it, it sounds so crass now, but uh, at the time it was a revolution. You know, you could not, in 94, you couldn't find a, a decent cup of coffee on any high street in the country. It just didn't exist. So, you know, we all live with all the Costas and Starbucks and all the other uh, high street brands now. And that is the norm. And we're all um, versed in, in the hundred types of coffee that they produce. Um, but uh, in those days, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely not. So... Um, and I think, you know, 93, 94, uh, you, you have to think what was going on then. It was, um, we were just coming off the back of a sort of boom in the Michelin-starred um, restaurants. They, I guess, started to be really noticed in the UK in that preceding decade. Um, and it was tra uh, Michelin-starred restaurants were sort of translated in, uh, as a slightly uh, stuffy, formal uh, affair in the main. Um, and I certainly came out of country house hotels um, where it was a, a pretty formal um, experience with, you know, jackets worn at dinner and, you know, as I said, on the tent card, there were, there were no kids allowed and no dogs and know this that you know there were a lot of rules around uh, around the restaurant experience uh, and yet I was witnessing in London uh, in, uh, you know at that time so in 90 in the early 90s they were the start of the Conran restaurants um, you know Quaglino's and Mezzo and you know Anthony Worrell Thompson's 190 Queensgate and Alistair Little and so on. So there was this new wave of of restaurants opening up 
that were much, much more in tune and catching the zeitgeist of the time uh, and, and realizing that, uh, or at least demonstrating that um, it didn't have to be a formal, stiff affair to serve great food in a fun atmosphere. And so that's really what we cottoned on to to try to bring to the, to the provinces. Yeah. Uh, so, and you cut your teeth particularly at the Tewton Glen, eight years, I think, wasn't it, as manager of the Tewton Glen? Um, funny enough, Adam, um, Andrew Stenbridge has been on the podcast. Did you and Andrew cross over at that point? No, no. In fact, we were, uh, uh, Andrew and I never worked together. Um, I mean, we, we know each other well now and, uh, and see each other. You know, obviously, he's, he's just down the road in the New Forest. Um, uh, and we, uh, you know, we compare notes from, from time to time. Um, but no, I left in um, 94 and uh, a chap called Peter Crome took over who uh, is now at the Carnegie Club in uh, uh, the Ski Skibo Castle Carnegie Club up there uh, in Scotland. And then Andrew Stembridge took over from, from uh, Peter Crome. So we were, I don't know, Eight or ten years apart, okay. actually, and, and now you're practical, uh, practically neighbours. Yeah, we um, have. Was was the Tewton Glen particularly influential though in you deciding what you wanted to do with with Hotel Devan? Did a lot of what you wanted to create in in Hotel Devan come as a result of what you'd witnessed at the Tewton Glen? Uh, I mean, without a doubt, my time at Tewton Glen um, were completely formative years. Not only um, honing some management skills and uh, and and the other skill set that 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 sits around being. Uh, a general manager and then managing director of, of, of that property uh, and of course working alongside Martin Scan who, who you know in his time was uh, was equally revolutionary um, uh, you know he started June Glen 66 uh, when uh, and, and he had zero experience at the time he sort of bought it and uh, and and felt his way and and to become what Tewton Glen became uh, as a leading and is still a leading uh, country house hotel over that many years is a real credit to to uh, to Martin and and his wife Briggy. Um, however, the the there was a change of foot during during my period. Uh, so I was there from eighty six to ninety four, and the change was being felt. Uh, in the metropolis, um, but it hadn't quite found its way to the sticks. Um, uh, and so I guess I got on to the vanguard of that wave really um, and uh, and tried to and and tried to create something that was um, simpler, um, more available, um, and more in tune with how I believed people were wanting to live their lives. So, and I wanted to see people in a t-shirt and jeans next to a guy in an Armani suit at the time, you know, and um, uh, I wanted to see that, which actually you see more on the continent. You know, you, you, you do see a, a, a worker uh, in, in in a French restaurant uh, uh, of old, you'll see a worker, and then there'll be a family out for a celebratory meal, and you know it's 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 a much more uh, all-encompassing experience, I think, in 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 places like France and and Italy and Spain. Um, you know, 
they've always had a slightly different take on restaurants um, to, to our take on restaurants in the UK. Mm. So when you did the first one, was, was the plan in those early days that you were going to do a number or was it literally that you just wanted to get your hands on a building and kind of do something different to what you'd seen before? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I mean, I'd been uh, lucky to climb the ranks um, uh, to the to the level of, of managing director and I was still relatively young. I think I was uh, I was about 36 or something. Uh, does that sound right? Yeah, I think the maths some, are pretty good. Yeah, 28 when you started at Shooting Glen. Something like you that, say, yeah. 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 Anyway, I was about 36 uh, when, I, uh, uh, when I'd completed eight years at Shooting Glen. We'd been through a horrific uh, recession. We'd built um, uh, quite, uh, quite large extensions onto Shooting Glen during that time. We built the spa at that time. We took it from 40 to 60 rooms. We put in a golf course, so on and so forth. So it was a... I learnt, um, you know, I really sort of cut my teeth on on all of the project stuff, uh, the recession, which just after we'd spent all the money on the aforementioned, um, uh, we had that uh, horrendous recession where the interest rates shot up to 20% overnight or something, and we'd just borrowed um, uh, five million pounds at the time to do those those extensions. Uh, and I do remember sitting down with Martin, uh, you know, just thinking, "Wow, this is uh, this feels quite scary." Mm. Um, so, uh, so that was a very uh, that was a very uh, formative uh, time uh, for sure. Um, what was the question? So the, so when what was the question? Yeah, well, I've drifted yeah, no, off. Sorry. No, no, no. It's a good. It's a good. It's a good lead in to the to the answer. So, so yeah. When you did the first one at Hotel Devan, oh, was yeah. was the plan to oh, yeah, open more? Right. And what were you trying to do that was so different? That's right. No, no. That's right. So, so anyway, by the time I got uh, got to thirty six and eight years in, um, uh, I felt that you know I'd seen quite a lot, and I really just thought to myself, uh, Am I going to work for someone else for the rest of my life, or am I going to try to do my own thing and uh, I remember Judy and my wife and I were on holiday sitting on the beach um, in uh, in Barbados and um, we uh, we were just uh, we at that moment said okay we're gonna try and do our own thing Um, so then how do you go about that so first of all we had to come up with a a concept so the idea was to take this uh, new food um, uh, experience that was going on in, in, in London and also I was really interested in the sort of townhouse hotel which really was the precursor to what we now call boutique hotels um, so I was really interested in, in that and I thought well if we put all that together that's sort of why wouldn't that work and if there's a market for you know, crappy hotels in the provinces at about a hundred quid a night. Then there must be a market for, for something slightly more considered. So, so that was kind of an idea. And then um, uh, Gerard Basset, who was the sommelier at uh, at Tuton Glen, and I went to a wine tasting in London, and we ended up. Um, having lunch at one of the very first gastro pubs called the Lansdowne in Primrose Hill, and we were sort of blown away, really. I mean, 
we'd had quite a liquid uh, pre-lunch, but anyway, we, with with this wine tasting. But the guys from Babendum, where we were wine tasting, they took us round the corner to the to the Lansdowne for lunch after, and we walked we walked in with the samples of wine that we've tasted uh, we tasted at lunchtime, and we sat down. And to this day, uh, you know, I remember the environment. It was kind of what we now know as shabby chic, and. Uh, we sat down, and I remember my meal. Uh, it was it was a, a, a goat's cheese and a red pepper salad, which at that time wasn't you know that that sort of thing just didn't really feature on menus. It was you know obviously a very Mediterranean style dish, and I came away from there, and I said to Gerard on the way home from from that that uh, lunch, I said you know. What are you going to do next? You know, and he said, "Oh, I think I'm going to go to California and write about wine." And um, so I just, I thought, okay, fine. Anyway, th- a few days later, I thought, well, what about if we encapsulated wine as the USP into into this sort of townhouse hotel, simple food? Uh, you know, could there be something in that? So I rang up Gerard, and I'd scribbled. Uh, on the on the notes that I'd made, um, Hotel Duvan, and uh, uh, <laughs> I said to him, "What about you know we do a hotel with a wine school and da 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 you know?" And he'd been at Jim, I'd recruited him down there, so he'd been at Jim Glen for a good few years as well. Um, anyway, uh, he came back to me a few days later and said, "You know, I'm up for uh, for looking at that." Um, didn't have any money. He was in negative equity at the time, which was uh, a little bit problematic. Uh, Judy and I had a house with a mortgage and all the rest of it, uh, and no savings. So we set about um, we set about trying to raise some money. And the first hotel we found we found a property in Winchester, um, which was a really good find. Actually, it was a Georgian, uh, lovely Georgian house. Um, and it had a car park, and it, it felt like it was in the right part of town. Um, and we put this sort of bistro concept together. We opened with 13 bedrooms. Uh, the, pro- the project uh, in total was about one and a half million, um, uh, which was r- we raised about, um, that must have been 1.3 million, I think, something like that. We raised... Um, some Royal Bank Scotland um, uh, uh, lent us about uh, three quarters of a million, um, uh, and it was a time where <laughs> I, I remember the first loan document. The interest rates were were twelve and a half percent in that time. So you know, quite punchy stuff. Um, and uh, and then we put together a raft of investors. I say it very quickly like that. That was that took some time and and uh, full use of selling skills to to get that one across the line. And on a couple of occasions, you know, we got pushed back. And the one thing I learned out of that, there's a huge difference from people that say yeah, 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 uh, and and them actually signing the check. You know, uh, uh, so that was a that was a good lesson learned. Um, anyway. Finally, we raised, uh, uh, I think, half a million quid from 14 different investors, and the bank 
uh, debt we had and uh, off off we went and um, so and we opened a hotel van Winchester uh, in September 94 amazing yeah good it's nice to hear the story having sort of oh and the house and really Judy God bless her to this day because we, uh, Gerard didn't have any uh, equity in his house so we had to put our house up as the guarantor for the business so yeah, so it was quite punchy stuff, but but luckily it went okay. I always have to ask forgiveness of my wife because we ended up building a balcony on the uh, on the front of our restaurant down on the seafront because uh, we upstairs restaurant on the beach couldn't even open a window. So you'd have this empty restaurant in August, July, and August because nobody wanted to sit upstairs yeah. and not be able to open a window. So I was like, well, we've got to open up the doors and build a balcony. And it was about one hundred and fifty thousand, and we'd been saving because we'd we'd been in rented accommodation and done multiple moves, and uh, we'd been saving this cash. And I was like. Yeah, so I took her out for dinner, sat on the balcony overlooking the ocean and go, here you are, darling, you know, this is this is basically the deposit for your house. But you can come here anytime you want for dinner. And then we only actually go about once every two years, which, which, which uh, she reminds me. Um, is it true that you and Gerald literally used to sleep on the sofa in the bar to save costs at night? Don't know, yeah, so we put together a real kind of... Uh, Not together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we put together a very sort of lean staffing structure. I mean, we... To be honest, we didn't have a clue what we were doing, um, uh, putting together this different sort of um, restaurant. We completely underestimated the the volumes, of course, uh, because we opened and you know, we were busy straight away. But we didn't want to commit to a night porter, so Gerard or I would um, would sleep on this, uh, this big sofa in, in the uh, lounge uh, to cover nights uh, initially. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, we grew it, of course, eventually the staffing and so on. But um, it was very, very lean. And either he or I ran. He did most of the the restaurant um, uh, legwork, I suppose. Um, uh, but he or I were always in the restaurant. And yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a huge amount of fun. We had a lot of support from our uh, raft of investors. Uh, Pretty much day one, people started uh, coming through the door, and and our, I think our real first stroke of luck with that was uh, the then uh, Times restaurant critic Jonathan Meads, who really was the you know the grandfather of 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 the current clutch of of, of restaurant critics, and you know a brilliant a brilliant man, brilliant writer. Um, and had depth of knowledge to understand what the hell we were doing. And he he came about a month after we opened and completely got it and completely loved it and became a, a, a friend of, of, of the brand. Um, he now lives in France, um, but um, so we don't see him as often. But um, he really absolutely got it and wrote a storming review. And then, of course, all the other reviews piled in after that. And nobody really disagreed with Jonathan Meads at the time. And, uh, yeah, that was that was really the start of it. And Amazing. then we added some rooms, one thing or another, and, and it turned into a great little business. Yeah, it really did. <laughs> That's a slight understatement, I think, isn't it? Was it seven venues in ten years and sold it for sixty-six million? That was the. That's uh, the one. Is that about right? It's not bad. <laughs> not too shabby, is it? From sofa to, uh, yeah. There, there's the summary. What was it though? Because that was amazing. It, it felt very different at its time. What What was so special about it? And and was it also partly the timing, I suppose, to get that level of growth in a decade? Yeah, I mean, you know, timing is uh, timing and luck are, are, are 
large uh, parts of this. Of course, you, you know, the old adage, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, but, um, and we did, we worked bloody hard for, for, for 10 years. And I think we made the right choices in some key properties. We managed to attract some, some, some good investment as well from private individuals that didn't give us um, too much grief. Uh, not any grief, actually. They they gave us a lot of support. I'm honest. sure they were quite happy with the uh, results. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, and I think you know, sort of strategically, we we chose the right parts of the country uh, in the main. Some amazing buildings. Uh, we learned a lot as we went along. Um, and you know, for for that those ten years, uh, you know, we were the darling of of the press and. Um, uh, yeah, it, it 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 just it just happened to work. Um, we were quite, although although it feels quite aggressive. Ten ten uh, seven hotels in ten years. Um, it wasn't. We were actually quite cautious. We turned down a lot more than um, than we we accepted to go forward with, um, and we had all sorts of crazy offers to to, you know to get in bed with other people and joint ventures and you know all sorts of things over the years but we we stuck to our knitting and I think I think it's a it's a pretty good um, strategy when you know when all said and done it's very easy and I think it's where a lot of today's uh, particularly the sort of celebrity chefs come unglued because someone waves a checkbook at them and and they forget for an instant that it's not about the money, it's about the people and the product, you know, and uh, and I think that's where so often, why they so often come unglued, because someone that isn't related to the industry perhaps uh, sees sees the stardom of, uh, of a big name um, and thinks it's Monopoly, it's not Monopoly. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Trophy restaurants. So I, I could spend two hours probably talking to you about the growth of Hotel de Van because we, but, but we can't because I want to get to some of the more modern <laughs> stuff. But I just wondered, did you any ever any regrets in selling it when you did, or do you still think that that was uh, just I don't know, I suppose an irrefusable offer? But no, I mean, we were always going to sell uh, Hotel de Van, and and you know we we always had that in our sights. We had said. Um, once we'd got motoring, I mean, when we first started, and I think back to your very original question, we absolutely didn't imagine that we were going to, um, you know, we were just trying to survive with one, ho one hotel restaurant. Um, but obviously, once it, once it became, um, once we realised it, it, it was a reasonably robust model and we could do a few more, um, that's when we, we actually said, well, maybe we could do up to 10 of these and then sell it. Um, it happened a little bit earlier uh, than that target, but you know whether it was seven, eight, nine, or ten. Ultimately, it, we would have sold it in that kind of time, you know, in that in, with that number. I don't see myself as the sort of person who would know how to run a huge company. Um, you know, I. I have always run our businesses by being in the trenches with 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 everyone, and and that's great, and it's there's nothing wrong with that. But um, in order to keep tabs on a much larger organisation, um, I think uh, I think that becomes very difficult with that style of management. Mm.
Okay. The people that buy it, did they did they get value from it, or did they move it on again quite quickly? Or? Uh, yeah, it's changed hands three times actually, yeah. and uh, I think um, it's currently owned by um, uh, some Singaporean um, serviced office uh, yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I have no, I, you know, I have nothing to do with it any anymore. They've they've opened more hotels, so I think I think there are about fifteen hotel vans now, something like that. Right. Um, and the various owners uh, each have, uh, I think MWB who bought it from us, they also bought Malmaison. Mm. And so, I mean, bizarrely, um, Ken McCulloch started Mal Malmaison in 94, the same year that we started Hotel de Van. We didn't know each other, but actually we were doing something of a similar genre. And the fact that they all ended up together is, is kind of, uh, obvious and bizarre at the same time um, but um, the uh, the various owners along the way I think some have done okay and some haven't done okay so so I don't know I I, I, I don't really um, I don't really follow it closely these days I've got other things on my mind you have got other things and much as I could go through your career in real time we'll, we'll miss the, the the Soho house bit because I want to get to the pig so congratulations you you must be one of the uh, few operators in the country that's managed to open a venue since lockdown because you've not had long but you've got a brand new one um what's it called it's down at harling bay isn't it harling bay near padstow yeah. so was that was that in build during lockdown and, and was the opening delayed because of what we've been through yeah so uh the pig at harling bay so it's just close to padstow it's in that kind of golden triangle of the north coast of cornwall that uh, starts with uh, Nathan Outlaw really in, in uh, Port Isaac and runs down to New Quay and Watergate Bay and, and, and all, all parts in between and of course Nathan, Rick Stein, Paul Ainsworth you know they're, they're all there and lots of other great people um, so it's in, it's in a unique spot we um, Judy and I have had a, a house down in that neck of the woods for um, uh, for the past 15 years, 16 years. And um, I had always said uh, I'd never do a hotel in Cornwall. It's too far from London. Uh, you know, you'd have to be crazy, too seasonal, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but a few years ago, five years ago, I think, we opened uh, the Pig at Coombe, um, which um, in Devon, in, in the Otter Valley in Devon near Honiton, um, and and Coombe has done really well, um, so it gave us perhaps the confidence to think that maybe further west wasn't the you know the end of the line, and in fact by opening Cornwall I think it further helps Coombe because you know that, that's sort of en route to uh, the Pig at Harling Bay now it's, it's it it is absolutely a fairly well trodden route from London and the south. So, um, yeah, we said we'd never do a hotel in, in, in Cornwall. Uh, Judy and I were sitting at our house one day. The next-door neighbour came round. I think she'd had a couple of glasses of the rosé to pluck up courage to come and talk to us. Um, and she came out uh, round and said, our family own this amazing house just down the road uh, called Harlan House. Um, we were thinking of doing a and b there, don't think we can quite manage that. Would you come and have a look at it? I think it would make a, a, a great pig. 
So um, having said we'd never do, uh, uh, never do a hotel down there, we took one look at it and realised that we had to do it. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty, uh, the building hadn't really been lived in for about 50 years properly. There were a few rooms that were habitable, but a lot of it wasn't. Um, it dates back to, it's a, it's a moody, atmospheric, stone-built um, farmhouse, really, um, uh, that dates back to the 1600s. And um, we started work, so we bought, we bought the freehold. Um, we started work on it in January um, last year, what's that, 19? Uh, due to open the doors at the end of April 20. So we were within about two weeks of practical completion on site and about six weeks from opening the doors when lockdown happened. So um, uh, it was pretty, it was a pretty awkward moment because we had contracted staff but they hadn't started, or a lot of them hadn't started. Um, we were at the fine detail end of the project, um, which Judy and I spend lots and lots of time immersing ourselves in. Judy, by the way, does mm -hmm. all the interior design. Uh, I mean, we kind of do it together, I guess. Um, but um, you know, all that, all that finite detail, all the all the million details that I was talking about before, um, and then we were just stopped in our tracks, um, so we had to close the site. Uh, we had to deal with um, the the staff, and so uh, some of them had missed out on the furlough, and some of them were caught by it, and so on and so forth. So it was it was complicated, um, and um, anyway, we we've got through the last uh, four months. Uh, we were allowed to pick up again uh, whenever it was, probably. It was sometime, I think, in May, wasn't it, that building sites went 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 back to work. So we were able to pick up again there, um, and we finally opened um, on the thirty first last week. Um, and um, uh, things are looking pretty good. Yeah, it looks beautiful. You said just then that you you literally took one look at it and knew it needed to be a pig. Does is it? You know, what do you see? Do you, do you literally look at the building? Is it, is it how it makes you feel? Do you almost see the kind of lighting and the clinking of glasses and see people in the grounds? What, what's the trigger that makes you go, yes? I mean, I think um, it's too romantic an idea to just imagine its gut feel. Uh, we knew that area, having had a house down there very well, and we've seen the development... Um, over the years that it really has become a year-round destination. Obviously, Rick Stein and others have done the hard yards on this for us. Um, uh, so we're really adding to the, uh, the offering down there. Um, and we've had a huge amount of support from, from the Steins and, and uh, all the other operators down there that, that um, you know, they, uh, they can absolutely see the benefit for the, for the region of us, of us sort of getting behind it as well. Um, but I think, uh, so we knew the area. Um, uh, I've looked at enough properties over the years to, to understand the possibilities. Uh, we've always worked with listed buildings. 
Um, so we n kind of know what we can get away with and what we can make us of the of historic England and so on. Um, and um, uh, you kind of instantly know whether there's any glaring uh, problems with it as a site. Uh, so many country house uh, country houses these days, you know, have been compromised by something. You know, there might be a industrial unit next door or a dual carriageway at the bottom of the garden or you know whatever it is which which mean that it it, it really compromises the operations so uh, but this didn't have any of those factors um, it sits very beautifully uh, there's sort of distant views of of, of the ocean um, it's got quite a lot of, I, I like to have as much sort of rural land around you as possible which it certainly has um, we had to take a lease on on some additional land from the the local farmer actually to, to give us a little bit more land but all in all it felt as if it could as if it could be something so then we then we sort of got into um, negotiations with historic England and local planners as to what um, uh, they would allow it wasn't big enough we knew that we would have to add bedrooms so uh, we could we knew we could get a dozen bedrooms in the main house but you know that's a long way short of of our sort of sweet spot of about 30 so um, we have built uh, in the grounds uh, some pretty substantial stone built beautifully stone built actually um, with local craftsmen uh, stone-built uh, barn-type structures, um, which um, which house 15 bedrooms, and then we've got some um, some garden wagons, which are kind of shepherd's huts on steroids as well uh, uh, there. So that gets our bedroom count up to 30. Nice. Is your neighbour uh, pleased to see what you've done with it? Because presumably some of the reward must be taking old buildings that don't really have a purpose and and turning them into being fit for the next. In a generation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you know, there's there's a sort of subtext to what we do um, over over the years, Hotel de Van and uh, and the Pig. Uh, you know, I think we have given new life, and in a couple of cases, rescued um, uh, old buildings um, or repurposed old buildings. So, Hotel de Van, we repurposed the Eye Hospital in Birmingham, for instance, and an old sugar refinery in in in, in Bristol. And in this case, um, this building, um, as is often the case with these type of, uh, of large houses, they become uh, uh, economically very difficult to, to rescue as a private house. Uh, generally, most of the land has been sold off, so there's no, there's no land to support the house as it, you know, as it would have been. Would have been in, in in you know sort of decades or, or centuries gone gone past, so um, uh, so it's difficult to see the future for some of the, some of these houses. Uh, and the great thing about hotels is that it opens up houses for everyone to see. Whereas if it goes for a private home or or an office or uh, some other institution. Then it's not really available for the for the general public to see. So I think, I think there's a kind of, there's definitely a subtext of us 
rescuing some buildings and doing good things for the future with, with, with some buildings. But also there's a bit of public service in, in so far as that, that we do allow lots of people to, to actually see inside these buildings. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was chatting to um, Chris Gumbel from Brewhouse and Kitchen. I don't know if you know hey. Chris, but they've uh, Southport, so not too far away yeah. from where we are now, took a, you know, a lovely old building, not quite sort of stately home love. But um, yeah, that, that role of hospitality and placemaking, I think, and in saving you know, high streets or towns, if you rock up in a, in a village in the middle of nowhere, all of a sudden there's a supply chain, isn't there? There's, there's local suppliers, local farmers have got somewhere to sell, local employment. It's such an important part of our sector, which I think is particularly important at the moment with what's going on with, with hospitality, I suppose, and, and the brink of catastrophe that so much of it is on. It, it, you know, it's more than just business, isn't it? I mean, in, in, you're absolutely right, Mark. In so many of, of the areas where we operate, we are absolutely the largest employer. Uh, but the ripple of effect through the supply chain uh, is at least as many people, again, that we, we, uh, we support. And funnily enough, when we, when we locked down um, in Harlin and we didn't open in April, you know, the local taxi driver said you know, he was banking on us <laughs> yeah pretty much uh, banking on us uh, 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 opening up and of course you know had um, has had a torrid time um, and funny enough I sent him a text yesterday and, and just said how's it going uh, is it coming back and he said yeah thanks to you it's it's uh, it's looking better again but you know that it goes for you know the local shopkeepers pub owners uh, uh, the transport network i mean it just it has a huge uh, benefit to whole areas um and also gives a three i mean somewhere like cornwall where a lot of the employment is seasonal it gives uh, you know we absolutely intend to stay open 12 months of the year and and to to give uh, we're putting 80 or 90 new full-time jobs uh, you know uh, annual annual jobs not seasonal contracts into that area, you know, that's quite a significant economic boost, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So concept-wise then, for the pig, looking at what you'd done with Hotel Devan, was it kind of going, look, we did that with Hotel Devan, I've got this itch that I want to scratch, I, I want to do it again, or was there something you didn't do with Hotel Devan when you thought, oh, I wonder if I can take certain ideas and certain concepts and try them in a new way? How, how much uh, inspiration, I suppose, came from that, and what were you trying to do differently with the pig? Um, I mean, to be honest, when we sold sold Hotel Devan, um, I didn't really have any aspirations of, of starting all over again. Um, clearly, you know, we'd made a little bit of money from from the sale, and so the pressure was off somewhat. Um, uh, not all sixty six million ended up in my pocket. I hasten to add. <laughs> There are a few banks involved. Yeah, I, 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 I presume that was the case, Robin. I didn't like to ask, but that was my presumption. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I thought I'm going to take a breather for, for a, a few years. And um, whilst we won't go too deeply into, into Soho House, as you suggested, but I had been a non-exec director of Soho House for a number of years already. And uh, Nick Jones said, look, rather than take on a load of other stuff, why don't you become chairman and give us a bit more time? So, so that's what happened immediately. Um, so that kind of kept me busy and we were expanding in America and, you know, we were, we were having a good time uh, uh, looking at properties for, for Soho House and, and deciding on that expansion. And, and Nick remains, you know, one of my best mates in the industry today. 
Um, uh, but uh, after three years, we were raising money for Soho House, and I'd, I'd, um, I kind of sold myself out of a job when we sold the majority stake to Richard Caring. Um, uh, so I was doing a bit of project work for Nick, and then I received the call from um, Jim Ratcliffe, uh, who owned a property then called Park Hill, uh, now called Limewood, uh, just up the road in the New Forest. Um, they were nearing completion of the project to turn this house into a hotel. And uh, he called me and said, uh, the project's out of control. We need some help. Uh, I'm not entirely sure we know how to open this property. Uh, would you come and get involved? And the timing just happened to be spot on. Um, so I got involved with Limewood. We got that open in, um, I think it was uh, 2009. Um, sounds about right, yeah. Um, 2008, maybe 2009. And then um, I was looking at the rest of the properties that were within the Limewood portfolio and just tidying it up, really. There was a loss-making restaurant, a half-finished restaurant in Southampton. There was a wholesale meat business. Anyway, I was I was um, closing and selling and just tidying up the portfolio. And there was this little hotel uh, where we're sitting now, um, and it was called Whitley Ridge, and it had about 15 bedrooms. Uh, and it had had a Michelin star at, at one point. Um, and uh, but the bedrooms were very tired the whole property was really really tired and so I had it valued um, to sell it really just to tidy it up and uh, it was it was uh, at the time it was valued uh, you know obviously based on on its um, uh, EBITDA uh, it was valued uh, as a multiple and it was valued at a million pounds and uh, so I was looking around, sort of uh, kicking the tyres here one, one day, and I walked into the kitchen garden, which just had weeds in and a couple of carrots, and, and there was a sort of light bulb moment where I thought, uh, wouldn't it be interesting to do a hotel uh, that, uh, see if we could replicate what happened at, Hotel Devan in terms of driving food and beverage into a hotel um, where we brought the kitchen garden completely to the fore and that became the clue and informed everything we we did so it informs the decor and and, and the style of um, the style of the operation so um, anyway cut long story short I said to Jim look I've got this idea um, we made a little presentation to him. I said, look, we're the management team. Uh, myself and the management team will buy 50%, leave you with 50%, and let's see if we can have a go at it. Um, so, uh, so that's what happened. And uh, we got planning permission to convert the stables into another 10 bedrooms. We redid the house. We put on the conservatory and uh, uh, finished off other extensions that hadn't been complete, new kitchen, all the rest of it. And we opened in uh, 
seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only 2011, actually, uh, summer of 2011. So we're, we're, we're about nine years old uh, in this builder. Um, and, uh, you know, I was always worried about the, the countryside on the wet Tuesday in February, and um, uh, it just took off. Uh, really just gangbusters and uh, we haven't uh, touched wood uh, looked back apart from a few little interruptions of uh, the last few months yeah, yeah the, the odd pandemic I like it all the more for the fact that it was an accident actually I think and that you hadn't spent sort of you know two years kind of you know planning and strategizing I just like yeah you know there, there was a kitchen garden and a rundown building and you created this it's uh, it's kind of nice that it evolved rather than was designed I think yeah and um Absolutely, it, 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 it's not a, it's not contrived in 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 that kind of way. You know, I've always been firmly of the belief. Same with Hotel de Van. You know, I think we were justified in putting the name of Hotel de Van outside the door because Gerard was the best sommelier in the world. We we absolutely, you know did a deep dive into into the world of wine. Uh, we ran wine courses, we had good sellers, we employed great sommeliers, it became a fantastic train, training ground for, for sommeliers. So, you know, we, we were very, very genuine to, to, to the name and I wanted the same to be true of the pig. Um, you're probably going to ask me why it's called the pig. I think, did I read something about something in the US? I'm trying to remember what the trigger um, was. But yeah, why, 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 go on, why is it? No, I'd, al I'd always like the um, uh, the name of the restaurant, the Spotted Pig in Manhattan. And I yeah. sort of, there's something weird about that juxtaposition of, of, of you know, the skyscrapers of Manhattan and a, and a restaurant um, called the Spotted Pig. But So that was partly it. Um, but really, the idea was to break down the formality of of uh, country house hotels uh, in the same way that we'd we'd done the town centre hotels with with Hotel de Van, but to break it down. And you know, one one of the reasons that um, through the eighties and nineties and and uh, uh, the country house sector, there was a there was a point where every gothic pile in the middle of a field was turned into a country house. That was sort of the 80s. Most of them, they were all uh, um, privately owned, and then they were bought up by outfits like Von Essen. Von Essen went bust um, uh, in the, uh, when was that, about, I don't know, 2012, 12, something like that. Um, and so all these previously privately owned hotels then had become uh, uh, available again on the market. And so it was all a bit of a state of flux that was going on in the country house hotel market. But the ones that survived were still quite uh, quite expensive, uh, quite formal, um, of, of, a certain, of a certain genre. You know, they were, they were all very five-star. And so what we were, again, trying to do, and I suppose if anything defines my career it's that that kind of upper mid spot um and so i guess we were trying to that's the bit i know best and i um, trying to to bring that to the country house as opposed to the townhouse and um 
and so we, we were trying to trying to give it give it a name that wasn't the something something house hotel or something lawn or castle or whatever people are rather scared of that they're rather intimidated and scared to go up the drive i wanted to give it a name that people wouldn't wouldn't be scared to go up the drive i wanted it to have agricultural connotations because of the kitchen garden uh and if it sounds like a pub that's good because people aren't scared of pubs you know so yeah yeah no it make, make, makes a lot of sense um and it makes you smile, I think, when you, you hear the word the pig for some reason, doesn't it? So, um, you mentioned that a couple of times the garden, so the, the weed field garden had kind of you know inspired the rest of it, and, and you've become increasingly known, I guess, the 25 mile or 15 mile originally, I think, wasn't it? And then the 25 yeah, mile. Yeah, the 15 no, mile work. No, it was uh, just, just, just a little bit too. When no. I read that, I was like, man, why do you always have to go one step too far, Robin? Jesus. Over ambitious. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so increasingly known, I guess, for provenance and seasonality. Were you already into, because not everybody sees a garden and goes, okay, I'm going to build the whole concept around that. Were you already into kind of growing veggies and your own kind of garden? No, not, not at all. Um, I suppose um, I just thought it was, uh, again, you know, people becoming much more interested in provenance and, uh, you know, uh, you could feel the wave of, uh, of more interested in plant-based foods and, you know, all, all of that stuff. I mean, none of it was new. I mean, people like Raymond Blanc were doing kitchen gardens long before, you know, I even thought about it. So um, so it wasn't new, but no one had really brought it right to the front of what they what they do. So, I mean, now when people talk about the pig, you're more likely to say, oh, yeah, that's the place with the kitchen gardens than probably any, anything else. And, and that's absolutely intentional. We take it very, very seriously. It's not a, it's not a toy. Um, we employ something like twenty, over twenty kitchen gardeners. My son Ollie is the sort of architect of all of all of that. We have our own um, uh, nursery with polytunnels where we grow all the seedlings, uh, which is a, uh, is sort of spreadsheet heaven actually because there's, we now have uh, seven kitchen gardens. All of them have, I don't know, 100 beds, and we've got three seasons a year, so you've got to have the right number of seedlings to go into the right bed at the right time. And, you know, so, yeah. so there's, you know, there's, there's a bit of science behind that. Um, but, yeah, we take it very, very seriously, and, and we, we love the whole provenance and the local thing. We find, we find amazing suppliers of, of, of all sorts of foodstuffs, you know, around every, uh, every hotel, and it's... It's a joy to, you know, get involved with them. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. Yeah, but well, this podcast is called The Humans of Hospitality for that reason because it's, it's the human connection, I think. You know, we've said for years in, in, in my business, you know, we don't buy from companies, we buy from people. Yeah. And you've got to like the people. And, and people who take whatever their little niche is, you know, their, their obsession to the ultimate yeah. level. And there's some crazy people in hospitality, whether it be, you know, Lavista mozzarella or whether yeah. it be a particular gin or whatever it is, but they just take things to these extremes. Um, your gardens are, are, are phenomenal. Um, James Golding, your exec chef, has been on the podcast. And I think he was part of the inspiration. So the reason I was smiling so much when you were talking about that spreadsheet is my wife thinks I'm particularly sad at the moment because in lockdown, my release, we, we bought a, a house a few years ago and it's a lovely walled garden. And um, yeah, so I, I you know built a little greenhouse, and I've been getting into the gardening, and, and she thinks it's tragically sad that I've got a spreadsheet <laughs> literally with yeah seasonality, and it's really hard to keep on top of. I'm envious of you having twenty or people who know what they're doing because yeah, I've got I've got things planted at the wrong time in the wrong place, but it's been yeah, it's been it's been a, you know probably my favourite bit of, of lockdown is because I've always loved it conceptually. You know, when, yeah, when yeah. James showed me around your garden, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, and I think I was there 
must have been maybe spring last year, but it was perfect timing and every, everything was in bloom. So yeah, I've always loved the idea, but now to actually get my hands dirty and do it, I, I think there's something about that connection with the land and connection with seasonality and uh, yeah, no, it's pro- probably one of the reasons why I love your brand. And actually when you reflect it on the, f- on the menu, I think I had some sort of, uh, I follow a predominantly plant-based diet, that's a whole other story and, and it's relatively recent, but he served me this beautiful kind of like, it was just a selection of things that had been picked that morning from the garden basically, but mm. cooked you know, exquisitely. It was, yeah, it was, it was just nice to see plant-based food done well, I suppose. So yeah. I think that, I think the challenge when you do it domestically is that you, you always end up with too much of one thing at at one time, (laughs) but of course, my my wife sees another courgette. (laughs) But of course in, in, in a restaurant you have the opportunity to, and we, you know, we change the menu every day. So, you know, whatever's fresh and coming out the garden, we, we, we put onto the menu so you can, yeah, you can have, uh, you can have 50 ways of doing a courgette if necessary. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's amazing. I've tried to inspire my chefs more, but you know, I think that change, and you alluded to this earlier with sort of plant-based, but you, know, you, can, you really have to be good, and, and there's so many more flavours. You know, with meat, you've got, I don't know, four or five key animals that we eat, I suppose, yeah. in certain ways of cooking them. But there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of edible plants that can Absolutely. all be cooked in a myriad of ways. And I think you can tell so much now around the quality of a chef by what they can do almost with their, with their plant-based offerings more than their meat-based much as lots of chefs would be anti that because you know classic kind of French cuisine I guess was, was yeah was I think it's changing now I think it's it is, changing now. it is changing in fact we'll, we'll touch on that so how much of that change do you think is is this sort of environmental issue I suppose I, I feel that we have a responsibility a moral responsibility in the same way that I suppose I expect an airline pilot to know how to fly a plane and I don't need to know too much about that you know people like you and I should understand where food comes from and the impact on the land and I, I sort of feel it's our responsibility but the difficulty is, you know, people always want to buy a, a, a cheeseburger or a steak, I suppose. So there's this, this, this sort of contradiction between, yeah, how much of it is, is educating people and saying, look, you know what, maybe uh, exploring veggies a bit more, flexitarianism or something, and, and how much of it is just going, look, this is what the consumer wants to buy, or is it, is it just about, you know, really understanding our suppliers and getting a closer relationship, I suppose, with farmers that you can look in the eye and you trust the way they farm rather than just seeing food as a commodity? Uh, I think, um, I mean, it's a big subject, it's, this. It's but, a big uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, uh, I, um, uh, like you, eat uh, much less um, meat these days than, than I once did. And probably, you know, from childhood, you were brought up with a, a kind of on a meat and two veg uh, diet, I, I suppose. Um, the... Uh, what is what it what I think is the most important thing is that whatever you eat is farmed or grown you know in the best possible conditions so um, you know the, the other day I was talking to to the uh, oyster and mussel farmer um, uh, uh, in the Camel Valley um, uh, near near the pig at Hyme Bay and um, you know, just a fascinating story of, of 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 growing these things, but you know, grown with with the highest uh, credentials, um, you know, uh, for sustainability and uh, and, uh, and and ethics. And the same with the there's a great little organisation down there, the um, the lobster the National Lobster Hatchery. So the one of our inventions at the Pig at Home Bay is, is we've got a second outdoor restaurant called the Lobster Shed. And uh, we 
but uh, alongside that we have become sort of sponsors of the National Lob Lobster Hatchery. So the Lobster Hatchery works uh, whereby the, uh, the lobster fishermen who still land into Padstow, so they're landed two miles from, from us, um, when, they, uh, when they land a female lobster that is full of eggs, instead of selling it on, they take it to the lobster hatchery where the, uh, the hatchery relieves the lobster of its eggs and looks after the eggs, developing them into little lobsters. Uh, when the lobsters are old enough to, um, to burrow in sand, that's when they can protect themselves. So then they're released and then they go through the cycle and, and are caught again. And, and so it's a perfect sustainable cycle. And actually, you know, lobster is one of the most sustainable uh, 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 seafoods, actually. So, uh, so there's all those uh, lovely little stories. So, as far as, uh, so I don't see anything anything wrong with with uh, with meat or or fish protein as part of the diet. And you know, absolutely, I would completely miss it if 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 I didn't uh, have that. But equally, plants. Um, offer such a wide variety of things and I think we see it now that on our menus we have a, a, a largish section apart from starters and sort of main courses uh, that uh, is called uh, Mostly Picked This Morning um, and we hero a veg in each of those dishes so be it, I don't know, carrots or celeriac or whatever it is um, and we try to do something reasonably interesting with it. Well, sometimes if the if the veg is is good enough and pure enough, you don't need to do a lot with it. But that section has gained huge, huge pop popularity, and probably now outsells starters. I mean, we do serve those as as starters or main courses, but but really huge, huge uptake. Um, uh, on that section of the menu, so mm. I think I think it clearly demonstrates that there's a shift in that direction. I mean, it's not so many years ago, you know, from your restaurants, not so many years ago that um, uh, you know vegetarian would walk into the restaurant and and everyone would be groaning and and oh, bung him a, a you know kind of wild mushroom risotto because that's all we can think of um and uh, hope for the best you know but actually uh, you know that's changed a lot in the last five years yeah yeah it does feel like this time it is a genuine change you're absolutely right three or four years ago you know i used to complain about you know yeah. particularly the fact that, that veggies would, would write to me and complain even if i had three or four veggie mains on the menu mm -hmm. there, there was never enough and yeah. then they'd complain if there wasn't a v for veggie oh, yeah. and i was like i don't put an m for meat and an f for fish we sort of <laughs> expect you to read the description but yeah, yeah. I, I think this time it's changed and i guess i've become more interested and actually rather than than giving up something. I think what I've done is I've added so much to my diet yeah, yeah. rather than losing something. So I would never have tried your sort of freshly picked this morning menu before. It, would, it just mm. wouldn't have interested me. I would yeah. have gone for the lamb or the fish or yeah. something like that. But actually, this sort of... And I guess it was it was motivated for all sorts of reasons that, that I won't bore you with. But actually, the, the thing that's been exciting is that I try different things on the menu and, and, and try new stuff. And it's yeah, it's added more than it's taken away. And I think, the, I mean, the other, the other aspect that's adding fuel to the plant-based... Um, uh, uh, side of things, of course, is you know from there's definitely a, a sort of post and we're not quite post pandemic, but at least post lockdown, um, 
firstly, like you, people got into things like growing vegetables uh, during lockdown. But actually, you know, there's there's absolutely more consciousness about the environment uh, now uh, in 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 a post uh, lockdown period, and I think you know people are just ethically more conscious somehow, and it's a weird um, uh, uh, side benefit of what's happened, uh, but it, it's absolutely true. People cottoned on to the data that with less planes flying around. You know, it was better for the planet and uh, so on. And that seems to have percolated through other aspects of, of our lives. Yeah, I think so. And I think maybe just that, that slight simplicity of just slowing down for a little while yeah. and going, you know what? You know, we were locked down. We were only allowed out for an hour a day. And we found spaces and green spaces near where we lived that we didn't even know yep. were there. Or we'd not visited Absolutely. for a long time. And actually the simple pleasure of, you know, having a walk through a garden or through a park or by the ocean, if you're lucky enough to live in the south, um, was yeah, it was just a reminder that yeah, maybe we don't always need to hop on a plane or be jetting off to the next thing. So, so perhaps a slight love of simplicity. And, and I'm conscious of time, but I, I want to chat briefly about the pandemic. So, you were in, sort of motivated or inspired to write a, a pretty open letter to the government um, during the pandemic, and it, it was very much about the sort of the plight, I suppose, of rural hotels. And you had it signed by a number of your peers. What motivated you to do that, and, and did you get a response? Yeah. You know, I think when when it, it hit us all hard and fast and uh, nobody saw it coming, you know, two weeks before lockdown, you know, I was just thinking, oh, it's something that's happening on the other side of the world and, okay, Italy have got it, but, you know, that's because they're all living on top of each other or something, you know, and all the, you were listening to too much news on television probably. Um, and then, bang, we were, you know, we, we were locked down and the shock of that and... I felt a deep responsibility for for our team. Uh, as I said, we employ uh, about a thousand people now, and of course their families as well. You know, it probably means you're responsible for three or four thousand people. Um, and I was really scared that, um, out of ignorance of the sector, that uh, the government perhaps with the best will in the world, would make the wrong decisions. So it just started, I just said to Judy one day, I'm going to write to the Prime Minister and, and uh, you know, make my uh, feelings known. And literally I was drafting the letter and I thought, oh, maybe I'll get a few other signatures to, to go on it. So I sat down one evening and just, in no particular order, I just uh, really got out of my, my uh, email uh, uh, addresses uh, about uh, 40 or 50 hoteliers, pub owners, restaurateurs, uh, but all based outside of London because I felt that there was a, quite a lot of noise already happening inside of London. And so uh, I was scared that with the government making their decisions on how to best support um, the sector we would get scooped up with the the London um, uh, scene and we, I believe we had a very different set of circumstances and, and problems, not least seasonality, uh, and a very, very fragmented uh, part of the, uh, of, of the hospitality sector. So anyway, I wrote this letter and it was just, you know, uh, explaining kind of all the things that we now... Uh, we now all, all, all talk about and, and making some suggestions. Uh, 
And, but within 24 hours, I had a pretty impressive list of names to, to add to the bottom letter. And I asked them all to give me the number of people they employed. So uh, I think by the time, in 24 hours, I, I, all of a sudden I was writing a letter that, that um, uh, represented about 40,000 employees. And which was, uh, it, it even surprised me really. Anyway, um, I know uh, a little bit um, uh, Ben Elliott, who is the co-chair of the Conservative Party, but his day job, he runs quintessentially the concierge service. And um, uh, he said, yes, if I wrote the letter, he would see that it got to the PM. So... Um, I, that's what I did, and I and then I sent it to MPs and and I put it on Twitter and you know just generally made a bit of noise about it and uh, but actually sent a a, a a hard copy to Ten Downing Street. <laughs> I mean I didn't know whether, to be honest, anything would whether it would just go straight in the bin or what you know. Um, but uh, after a couple of weeks, I got a call from uh, Boris's senior business advisor, a guy called Oliver Christian, that I ended up having a series of, of uh, phone calls with. Um, and he was very, clearly is very close to, to the PM. And, uh, you know, he would say to me, I've got, I've only got 20 minutes because I'm, I'm, I'm due next door with the PM. Uh, and I would say, oh, well, don't forget to mention this point and so on and so forth. So, so that, that relationship uh, um, developed quite well uh, on the phone. And I, um, then I was invited to um, join a Zoom call with Boris himself and um, half a dozen other uh, operators from the rural economy. Uh, and, you know, I thought it was, we were all asked to, you know, land a couple of points. And, uh, you know, I felt that, that he was really listening and, and grasped the importance of it. Um, and uh, and then shortly after that, I received a letter back from from Boris, and and it clearly wasn't just a cookie cutter letter. It was it was answering some of some of the points. Um, and I think what we've ended um, uh, and there were a lot of people lobbying, so absolutely making no claims about this at all. But what we've ended up with is pretty close to uh, many of the many of the points that were being asked for. So. Um, yeah, like I say, there were lots of people doing lots of good work, not least Kate Nichols from uh, UK Hospitality and people like Jonathan Downey. And, uh, you know, there were lots of people working very hard at it. But, um, uh, yeah, I was just uh, I was just adding to that, really, and, and, and hopefully had a... Uh, there was a little bit of a voice for, for yeah. rural businesses. Yeah, and, and I think the list of things we were asking for, and, and Jonathan and Kate have, have spoken on the podcast as well, and I think most people were sort of... You know, it's, it's, like you say, it's not rocket science, is it? We were asking for the same thing. More clearly, we employ a lot of people. And uh, the, the, the cut VAT campaign for hospitality has been going on for mm. decades, I think, hasn't it? And trying to put ourselves much more in parity with Europe, where it's all they've pretty much most of Europe charges a lower rate, at least on the yeah. accommodation um, element. What do you feel... 
you know, I, I guess there's there's plenty to talk about on some of the positive stuff like, like furlough and now the VAT cut. But do you think do you think there's more that needs to be done? And what's your prediction? I suppose for the it feels like we we're, we're on this sort of potential tidal wave, catastrophic kind of tidal wave for hospitality, and it's unknown yet. And I think a, a number of people have now reopened and. Out of the city centres, ironically, it's almost like, you know, London city centre is still really struggling, but out of the city is good. But then that's very seasonal. What's your prediction and what more do you think the government need to do? Well, certainly just just at the moment, um, you know, it's slightly playing into the hands of businesses outside the uh, outside London and the cities. Um, we've certainly seen a, a good level of business since, since reopening. Um, I think there's uh, there's a... Uh, two big elephant traps just coming down the road. Um, the end of furlough, and they seem to be uh, saying that this really is the end of furlough, we're not going to extend that at the end of October, um, will really uh, will really cause, I think, a wave of closures and redundancies. I can, I can only assume that's, that's what will happen. Um, I mean... I'm pretty determined that we're going to not make, we haven't made a single redundancy yet, and I really want to avoid that at all costs if we can. And um, uh, so, so for us, we'll be working hard for that not to happen. But, uh, you know, for smaller businesses and, and perhaps businesses without some of the momentum that we have behind our business, you know, I think they won't have any, any choice really. Um, so that's the first elephant trap. Second elephant trap is uh, they've used some very curious dates for for the ending of the VAT relief, twelfth uh, uh, of January, I think it is, uh, where for for seasonal businesses that absolutely needs to last until Easter. So and and the business rates break and all all of that, you know all of those benefits need to carry through until until Easter of 21 otherwise all the efforts to help seasonal businesses might as well you know be thrown out the window you know so I think that's a that's a really tough one um, uh, you know they, they just need to get their head around that so that uh, for seasonal businesses um, uh, they can they can survive those last few months but it would be crazy you know they've put so much support the government have put so much support um you know behind this for for nearly a year and to fall at the, the you know the last hurdle would just be crazy so hopefully that that will come in time um the one silver lining in all this i think is that um you know in in decades i mean you know i've been in the business 45 years and I don't think I'd ever heard a government minister utter the word hospitality. Uh, and now, of course, it's a bit, I wouldn't say flavour of the month, but it's certainly high on the agenda uh, that every minister that stands up is talking about hospitality. So I do think out of all this, there, has, there is a recognition of the huge uh, economic and social part it plays uh, in UK in, in, in the UK in society and economically so hopefully that won't get lost in the you know in in the melee of coming out of this but and and I hope that continues and 
you know, maybe one day there'll be a cabinet post for tourism, uh, Minister of Tourism, and that would be a very fine thing to come out of this. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right. I think we seem to have been a sector that's just <coughs> sort of considered, I don't know, as, a, as an interim job when you were at university and, and, and you know, al- almost... You know, anti-hospitality. It's it's low pay. It's bad hours. You know, what what? Why is it important? And it, and it does feel like, you know, partly I think because of the economic impact of how many people we employ and, and how much taxes we pay. But I think more than anything, people have missed kind of going out and meeting their yeah. friends and going for a beer. And and all of a sudden, you know, in a similar way that the people have been out and clapping the NHS and being supportive and not not sort of comparing us with life and death. But I do think there's been this appreciation that you know what I really miss just going and sitting in a pub garden and and, and having a beer or, or a glass of wine and having a meal and chatting with mates. So yeah, I, I hope um, that that lasts and that as an industry we can yeah. stand up prouder. And, and I think actually we've done ourselves a lot of favours because I think a lot of people have, it's been obvious as to why we've been on our knees. You know, we've closed. No, no business can have a zero revenue strategy for any period of time. You know, accountants, marketing, solicitors—they've all at least had had some income, even if there's been a knock. So it, it's been obvious um, that that yeah, we've had this this huge uh, impact, I suppose, mm. uh, and why we need help. So, um, but I guess the other thing that we've done is, despite the fact that we've been on been on our knees, we've sort of we've stepped up and we've fed the vulnerable, we've fed the NHS. Yeah, I think you changed the diet of gorillas. I think didn't you? <laughs> you better explain that. Or uh... <laughs> uh, obviously the 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 one bunch of people we didn't furlough were the kitchen gardens the gardeners because we um uh you know we we didn't want the gardens just to be lost for the sake of uh, however many months it was going to be so we uh we gave the produce to neighbors to the vulnerable in the area to food banks to all sorts but down in um the pig at bridge place in kent um they had a, a lot of sort of brassicas and so on that were starting to bolt and you know i think they'd they'd fed the village and they'd fed the vulnerable and everyone else that that they could think of sending uh, you know food boxes to and um they are very close to the wildlife park howlett's uh, zoo uh, that house a number of uh, gorillas and ended up taking uh, Land Rovers uh, full of, of these brassicas down for the gorillas. So even the gorillas, uh, who are an endangered species, uh, benefited from from that. So, yeah, which I, is a I, good story. I thought it was great when I heard that, and I, I just hope they, they appreciated the you know the level of cuisine <laughs> that they were getting. I hope they got table service, Robin. We did, they, uh, it was they weren't lightly sautéed or anything yeah. like that. They were just raw. <laughs> yeah, have they left any re- reviews on TripAdvisor <laughs> or given you any given you any feedback? Um, I'm almost at an end, but the one thing we didn't touch on then, which is, is it may be less relevant for country hotels, but clearly for hospitality is this this rent moratorium as well. End of October, I think that's the other big cliff that we're approaching. Have you have you heard or seen any novel ideas that can solve that problem? Because I can't work out with the government whether they're leaving it as late as possible because they just want the private sector to, to get on and organise it, or if they're if they've literally got no idea what to do about it. But we've basically, we've got this moratorium, haven't we, that, that, that there's all of these uh, you know, restaurant owners, hoteliers as well, who are protected until the end of September. But at that point, not so much about then rent going forward, because maybe we've managed to take a few quid, but it's this rent arrears issue, I suppose, of zero revenue whilst we've been shut. Any nuggets of wisdom on that? Well, no, I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, we're not directly affected because we, we, we own our properties. So, so um, I mean, you know, our... Our rent, if you like, is in the form of interest uh, to the bank and, and repayments to the bank, uh, and we've had some relief on that. I mean, I think you know it's a pretty desperate situation in 
in the restaurant sector in particular, very few restaurateurs actually own their properties. Um, uh, the, the, the original Jonathan Downey scheme of, uh, of actually just having a, uh, a rent free period, that, that that period of time got added onto the end of your lease. Uh, so you just extend the the lease, uh, and then some sort of matching funding from the government for the landlords, who obviously all have loans and so on, uh, sounded like uh, potentially a workable uh, idea. Um, I see that uh, you know in certain certain larger landlords are starting to step forward. You know, Crown Estate, I, I believe, have. Have uh, have helped and are switching to turnover-based rents, which of course is uh, would be the the key rather than some fixed uh, fixed cost. Um, but let's hope let's hope out of all this. I mean, I think the the sector was already in trouble with this, with landlords hiking rents. Um, uh, you mentioned Mark Hicks before. Um, I mean, he, just before lockdown, he closed. Uh, his Brewer Street restaurant, you know, because the the landlord had pretty much doubled doubled his rent, and and it was just no longer viable. And there's a very experienced uh, restaurateur, you know, he's not a fly by night operator uh, uh, that just couldn't make it work. So, I think I think something had to happen anyway. And perhaps out of all this, the very best outcome is a different form of rent calculation based on, on, on turnover. If that happened, then that would be, be a great thing. Um, how this immediate issue pans out, I mean, is really anybody's guess. I just hope the government step up and, and offer uh, support in, recognize what's going on and, 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 and offer support in that direction. I'm sure they are waiting for the private sector to see, see what they do. And perhaps with some of the la larger landlords you know, stepping up now, maybe we'll see, see others follow. Hope so. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I've got to mention it because it, it'd be remiss of me not to on a personal level, but if, if when you're chatting to Boris next time about the VAT, uh, <laughs> can you go for, for sort of quarter two? Because uh, by what I mean, not quarter two, but, you know, uh, if we could trade spring next year, because the yep. thing is with a 15% saving for us in January, February, March, you know, it, it's nothing because there's very little trade in January, yeah. March. We're running at a loss anyway. Our turnover's low. You're not saving much. If we could get the first quarter at the very least in next year of spring, get that cash back into the coffers, that's for us, I think, when we're looking at some sort of recovery is solid trade April, May, June, and then we can get out of this. Well, funnily enough, uh, in my original letter to Boris, uh, I was asking for those tax breaks to be to the end of, of Q2, uh, so uh, the business rates uh, break and VAT. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, of course. You know, it, just because... Um, uh, you're allowed to open doesn't mean instant, uh, you no, know, no. profitable revenue, does it? Yeah, not no. Jan and Feb are, are always a disaster. Right, I want to end on a bit of positivity to the future. How many pigs have you got now, and how many do you think you will do ultimately? Um, we uh, we have seven at the moment. Um, one of which is a sort of B and B pig in Southampton. It's not it's not a full pig, um, and we're working on uh, on an eighth. Uh, in West Sussex at the moment, uh, in in the village of Maidhurst uh, in the South Downs, so that will open in about a year's time. Um, uh, that takes us to eight properties. Um, I think, 
given what we've just had in this past year, I'm not going to rush into doing any more immediately after that. We need to regroup and and try to get back on a on a really good stable footing. We've got a lot of extra debt to repay. You know, I, I think we should uh, we should probably sit tight um, and then see what happens. Really, um, you know, I have no aspirations to take over the world on, on of, of boutique hotels at all. As I said before, I don't think I, I, I know how to run huge businesses. Um, so um, so I th my instinct at the moment is we stick on eight until such time you know as I get bored or. I bump into that property I really can't refuse or, you know, whatever, I don't know. A neighbour knocks on your door and says, just one yeah, more, Robin, you know, just, I mean, just I, one more. I'm not, uh, I'm only a, a sort of, uh, uh, I'm early 60s now and, and you know, I, um, uh, I'm i not uh, 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 the 40-year-old with, with um, you know, quite the same energy. So, um, uh I've still got a few years in me, I hope, but uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's you know it's kind of the it's maybe the latter quarter of my career rather than the uh, middle quarter. Yeah, well, I, I wonder what motivates you because clearly you could presumably stop financially, so there must be another reason that you do it. You've also you know you, you're not a slacker. You've got the um, the ski property, I think, in Europe as well, haven't you? You've recently become uh, is it chairman or no non-exec of of Bellstaff, the, the clothing brand. Um, what what's the point where yeah I don't know you just go I suppose uh, yeah let's sell it and relax or you, have you have you got I suppose it's what does Robin's day like are you fundamentally doing the stuff now that you enjoy and therefore carry on doing it or do you go this is really a bit of a pain in the ass and I could do with a rest you know the the thing about this this uh, industry is you never know what any day brings do you so sometimes it's pain in the ass and sometimes I really love it um, most of the time I really love it. Um, because Judy and I do the, the projects together, um, uh, it means that although we work a huge number of hours still, uh, we spend a lot of time together, uh, which is, um, you know, I don't think it would be sustainable if I was going away to an office for 12 hours a day, six days a week. I don't think that would, you know, kind of work. But uh, but we do spend a lot of lot of time uh, together. We both enjoy it most of the time. Uh, it has its moments, of course. Um, but um, I think it's about it's about as uh, as long as we are still enjoying it, then we we keep doing it. Um, and the moment it becomes more grief than anything else, then then we probably stop, and one day we we'll sell it. I'm presuming you don't get a phone call on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock that says head chef's just had a hell of a shift. He's, he's walked out the door. He's not coming in for breakfast service tomorrow morning and we've got you know 150 people booked for lunch. Do you, do you not get those calls anymore? Um, I, I get less of them these days. Yeah, They go to James. <laughs> uh, I mean, we've got, we've got a, 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 you know, in the eight years that, or not, nine years that we've had the pig, um, you know, we've got a really... Uh, well-established uh, management crew some of quite a few of whom have been with me right from Hotel de Van Days and, and, and all the way through so um, there are now um, individuals not least uh, I have a, a wonderful group ops director uh, Tom Ross who um, is who really uh, takes a lot of that operational grief uh, away and 
uh, and does does a very good job of, of dealing with it. Um, so uh, so yes, there's absolutely a team, uh, and and they do a lot of the that harder stuff. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I as I said, I like to be in the trenches. I like to know what's going on. I still speak to staff every day of the week and. Um, and get involved in, 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 as you say, a lot of the things I like. So I like to get involved in the food and the wine and the projects and the decor. and the, So actually quite quite an interfering old busy body, really. Yeah, I think if you can do all of the you know the, the fun bits, and like you say, it's, uh, things aren't necessarily hard. I just think they take a longer time, don't they? And it'll be a lot of hours, but we're, we're lucky to be in an industry which is good fun. And I think if you can get to the point where you can run the business from an iPad on a motorbike, that's got to be key. <laughs> any, more, any more adventures planned? Or? Um, nothing, uh, nothing planned just at the moment. Um, I mean, I think... Uh, Travel in generally in general, this you know because of what's happened in the last few months, has has been put on hold. Uh, I mean, I think let's let's see what what uh, opens up and how it how it becomes in the next few months. But um, we like to travel. We like to uh, we like to see new things. So um, I'm sure there will be. Um, something somewhere in the future yeah yeah perfect okay well look thank you so much you've been uh, exceptionally generous for your time you don't realize how much time you've given me because it's probably gone quite fast for you but we've, <laughs> we've, we've, we've overrun a little bit but i was enjoying it so much uh, where should people go if they want to follow your adventures i think you're pretty active on twitter but if people want to follow you or want to follow the business is there a particular channel that's best for people to go to Robert? um uh, from from the business point of view um uh yeah please follow us on instagram or or, or twitter in fact uh, we are re rebuilding yeah, our. You were hacked, weren't you? We were hacked, yeah, and we lost all of our Instagram followers. Is it the Russians? Uh, who <laughs> knows? Um, they get the blame for it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> all the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so um, yeah, so so yeah. Please follow us on uh, on Instagram. I'm not an Instagrammer personally. I'm I'm a tweeter. Um, uh, that's largely because I don't really know how to 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 do the Instagram thing, um, uh, which is pretty pathetic. But um, anyway, so yes, please please follow, follow us or, or sign up for our regular uh, newsletters, which um, which are full of full of juicy information. Perfect and inspiration. Great. I will put links to all of those channels you mentioned uh, on the show notes for this episode as well and make Brilliant. it clear. But yeah, Robin, thank you so much for sparing the time. Uh, yeah, my hundredth episode, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. That's great. So there you have it. If you got here, nice one. That was a long chat, but I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Go and stay in a pig, or at least visit one for lunch. You will be pleased that you did. They really are something special. And if you did enjoy the chat, please pick up the device you're listening on now and scroll down to the review section. Hit five stars, and why not subscribe whilst you're there? And if you have a smidgen more time, leave a few words. It really helps those algorithms get this show in front of more people. And that helps me encourage more awesome guests to say yes when I get in touch for a chat. And if you head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk, you'll also find links to the social channels that Robin and I mentioned. And perhaps whilst you're there, sign up for the newsletter, where each week I will keep you posted on the latest guests. And I don't share your details with anyone at all. Okay, until next week, thanks for listening.